theater in the 50s. And the diversity in Seattle was the Swedes and the Norwegians. <laughs> different whites, basically. Right. Yeah. Different, different, yeah, north, northern whites. <laughs> and, they, and, the, and the differences are like one um, spells their name with an E on the end and the other has an O on the end. They fight. Well, that's that's like, what I was going to say. Is I, I think that there's just something in in human nature that whatever the greatest difference is, people will exploit and use that to tear each other apart. In, in the same way that when the Irish came over or when the Italians came over, they were like the exploited minority. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got people coming in from elsewhere and it takes a little bit of the heat off of them. That's such a good point because it's so relevant to now that we've always we've we've always seen other people from other countries that way even when they're the same religion but especially when they're not especially like when they've been catholics or something it is a strange thing in in human nature i guess we're just sort of wired to form cliques and clans it seems like yeah the the scandinavians you know like the scandinavians like the the icelanders they're like lowest on the totem pole in, in scandinavia and then it used to be and then the danes the danes are like we're the best. They're down on the Swedes. There's a, there's a movie about that, about Swedish slaves arriving in Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> Indentured servants, I think. Which is, again, like one wrong like above being a slave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like a, a slave slavery that you could hypothetically get out of at some point. Yeah, right. Exactly. What brought you back to Seattle? Was it family? Back to Seattle in 1989, my mom died. I inherited the house that I pretty much grew up in. And got back here and started right in on the garden, <laughs> terraforming the place, trying to throw things out, <laughs> not doing a very good job of it. You inherited a house and just became instantly domestic? No, 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 no. Not, I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I just spent 10 years in Manhattan. And uh, I was when I was hired by the National Lampoon as an editor, they paid my way to, I think I was, well, I had a house in uh, St. Pete and I was living in Los Angeles. I was living in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. And uh, so I, I, I moved from LA back to St. Pete, back to, and got it, went to New York and uh, got up. My apartment was ready for me and uh, I just moved into it and lived there for, I had a dog in in manhattan i lived in the village on east 11th street 50 okay. east 11th street which is like right around the corner from washington square park so but uh new york was almost too much for me i had a lot of fun there but i've never i've never been to the statue of liberty i've never been to the empire state building i was just sort of holed up in my little apartment usually and uh so you know i worked for lampoon there for a while i don't know doug kenny died and it sort of everything got very depressing in 1981 john lennon was killed i was soon in therapy twice a week it was it was that i had a stalker <laughs> and could barely handle it. So I ended up when I, I just, I never felt, you know, like people who live in Manhattan, do you live in Manhattan? I live in Queens. Okay. So people who who live in New York and love New York, they love the architecture. They love the things. They love the theater. They love a lot of things that I just don't personally care about. And, And the whole history of the place. 
And I just never was that rooted in an area. So I, and I used to wake up, I used to wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and just think, oh my God, what if I die here? You know, what's going to, I don't want to die here. (laughs) Why would that be such a terrible fate? I was like waking up alone in a little apartment and thinking if I die here, nobody's going to know. Okay. It's like the Collier Brothers story. I'm sure you're familiar with that. My brother's keeper, the one with all the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The two brothers who got uh, uh, crushed to death with their newspapers. Yeah, it is very, very much like that. I mean, my life is very much like that. I have a lot of stuff. I mean, you can look at my stuff here. and I collect a lot of stuff and I I consider that a good thing. I've been here for about 15 years at this point, and I have also never been up in the Empire State Building, and I've never been inside the Statue of Liberty. And I think that might just be part of once you live in a place, you don't necessarily want to visit all the sites. Like, I'm sure you don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, in the in the Space Needle, for instance. Well, um, not lately, but uh, <laughs> I, if you come to visit me, I will take you on the uh, what my girlfriend used to call a, the Nazi tour. I'm the Nazi tour guide because I make you look at everything that I think is cool here. I do really like this area now. I appreciate it now where I didn't before. I mean, I learned that if you move to Florida, it's so hot in the summertime that unless you live on the beach, you can't go outside. It's uncomfortable. You can barely breathe. You have to be in the air conditioning. And so that's as bad as having a winter. Do you feel that the idea that you wanted to escape to the big city was overstated? I escaped to, originally I escaped to the Bay Area to San Francisco in 1971. I turned 21 and got in a car with a bunch of other people and went down to Berkeley, soon joined up with the Air Pirates group. And that was, I mean, I'd already been doing some comics and artwork for, I was trying to think of a better name than underground paper, but it it was a- We call them alternative weeklies now as yeah, and it's 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 so different from an alternative weekly because it's so much more angry and political and different. And I mean, it was it was alternative news. It was news that we weren't getting anywhere else. Homegrown news. I just thought being around sunshine would be better. And you know, you're you when you're younger, you just do that. You travel around looking for a life. I think I'm from the Barry originally. I'm from the East Bay. And I get the sense, I mean, not as much with Ber- Berkeley, but certainly with San Francisco, that San Francisco is not nearly as sunny as people probably think it is. Yes. So Oakland is 10 degrees warmer than San Francisco, and San Jose is 10 degrees warmer that. So, so I'm, I'm from Fremont, which is right. Oh, yeah, Fremont. In Oakland and San Jose, basically. Yeah, you just yeah. get right on the, the BART train and, and you've got all the amenities. You were already a cartoonist to some degree by the time you moved out to San Francisco. You were you were drawing at that point. Yeah, because I, I, I had been working on the underground paper and we went down as as missionaries to this the Sky River Rock Festival, you know, to political missionaries, not really missionaries. In the sense that you were spreading the good word. Well, yeah, because we had we had this Gestetner machine that we would, you know, this mimeograph machine in the back of a truck and we were turning out our own version of the newspaper. Because that was that was like what we did. I mean I was I've I love publishing Mm -hmm. and we were publishing. 
And I was fresh out of art school and I, and I met Dan O'Neill, who was working for the San Francisco Chronicle. Ted Richards and Bobby London had been working for the Berkeley Tribe. And Gary Halgren, they had come up from California and Gary Halgren, who had been, who had created Splendid Sign with, an, with another really great artist here. He was trying to get into comics. I think that was why he was there. Anyway, he was there too. They were making signs, like signage, uh, hand-painted. No, no. In Seattle, he made signs, yeah. but not I don't not that I know of it at Skyrim. No, but when you say splendid sign, like that was what he was doing for a oh, living, was actually painting signs. They, they revolutionized the whole sign world of signs by bringing back the original like the turn of the century lettering styles and everything. It's, really- it's just a weird aside, but I was reading the, the interview you did with a comics journal a number of years ago. And the other guy that you mentioned who worked with Gary went on to do the Starbucks logo. So he had a pretty, he had a pretty good that. career. Wild because it's just information that isn't out there for some reason. This is the thing about Seattle is there are a bunch of people who are like wildly talented and they stay here and everybody mm. here knows them. Not so much now, maybe, but they did. I mean, you could become famous in Seattle, but you would it would not be national. Because the national media, I mean, the people in New York thought we still had dirt streets and rode horses when I went there in, in the 70s. And it was nice because you could say, well, I'm from Seattle. And they had no reference. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't put you in any kind of category, you know, with religion or social category it was just sort of a blank slate to be from it so it was nice so you moved back in in 89 and obviously you're right on the cusp of seattle i mean that's really right right at the point where seattle kind of becomes the the cultural epicenter of the world microsoft microsoft but also nirvana you know and grunge and all this stuff that was happening in seattle in the late 80s early 90s yeah that was yeah and i was married to a musician at the time and so he he didn't really he didn't think he wanted to stay here and then he was like this is great so he loved it so that that was one reason we thought maybe we'd, we would just stay for a year or so and then rent the house out to somebody else and go back to New York. But we decided not to do that because we were having fun here. After you're going through this difficult time, and it sounds like it was both internal and external struggles when it came to Lampoon, did that, how much of an impact did that have on your work as a cartoonist? Did it make it difficult for you to keep working on the strip? Well, I think, I think there was a period of time when I might have stopped because it was a it was it started out being a monthly deadline and then I broke up with my first husband who was a cartoonist Bobby London and I didn't I didn't think I could do my comic strip anymore I I did I went through a period of like total okay that's over what next and I just, I think I probably ended up going back to New York or something. I forget exactly. I, I produced a couple of uh, books on my own and I just started working again. And, and the Lampoon kind of had me back, you know, and I, and I would just continue to do this thing, which is you, every month you do a page and send it in. And, and then they would ask me to do like three or four pages of color. So I was doing that too. It was great. I was in I was in San Jose then after that, and uh, there was a swimming pool in the backyard, and I'd lay out in the sun all day and write my strips, and then go in and draw them all night. 
So, so I think probably there was a period of time like that. When I, when I left Lampoon, I traveled uh, a lot. I, I came back out to California and hung out with my friends and I just like took a, took a vacation and then ended up back doing the same work and doing other things. Not, I don't just do cartoons. I did some, I did animatics for um, J. Walter Thompson. I, gosh, I did kind of a lot of illustration work just whatever comes in the door. I'm pretty, I think pretty lazy as an artist. I, I wait for, wait for a phone call or something to somebody to ask me to do something. The strip must've been nice though, because I suspect you at least had some specific deadlines and you knew what you were working on for an extended period. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I don't, I don't know how to explain that to you. I, I, um, my career, my career isn't, is not, I don't think my career is like most people's career. I have never ever pushed it. I've I have I've never like really sought out things. I do what people ask me to do. The lampoon was a really rich source of work for me for a long time. King features. I there were books that I that I illustrated for King features. I illustrated Bruce Fierstein's Nice Guys Sleep Alone, which came after his big hit book and wasn't as big a hit but that that took me forever I went out to California and consulted on you know what all that meant nice guys sleep alone and then wrote a bunch of cartoons and drew them and that you know that was a that was a typical project you do 90 cartoons and there's like 15 of them in the book that's how the work comes out my work is I'm really big on you know I teach some and and I'm really big on you know garbage in garbage out and my feeling is that you want you want to do you want to consume a lot of a, an eclectic kind of information. Mm-hmm. So you're not just looking at your own work. You're not just looking at other people's work that's like yours. You do a lot of reading. You experience a lot of things. Travel. So you know. And then I was very busy looking for a cool husband. At at the time I left Lampoon, <laughs> and that's a lot of work. Did you say you were very busy looking for a husband? Yes, I did. I know, like, I guess abstractly what that means, but like pragmatically, what does that mean? You know, this is the thing is that I think I, I feel a little embarrassed about how important it has been for me to have a cool husband, but it was instilled in me by my parents who thought that I should find a nice midshipman because my father was a career naval officer and my mother had done that. She found a nice midshipman, you know, who was, you know, she knew him before that, but she married him for security. And they thought that that since I was, since they felt that I was probably useless as a human being, and that I should just find someone to marry. And, uh, and then I would be like, then I would be able to survive life. No, no talk of college, no talk Mm -hmm. of career, nothing, not, not groomed to do, to have a career. There was only some, if you had a career, it was a fallback. It was something you you fell back on if your marriage didn't work out. But when I did start to have a career, so my first husband was a cartoonist, you know, and I talked him into marrying me. My father was dying of cancer and I, I was torn between these two men, my dying father and my boyfriend, who I knew that if I left him alone, he would drift off. And he was really cool. Bobby London was 
amazing guy. Just a, he'd been corresponding with Stan Laurel for years, and he knew everything there was about that era of comedy, like the great directors and, and about like how they became, how they projected funniness, things like that. Uh, he was a real scholar, and it was a blast talking to him. It was a blast working with him. And we were, you know, I was 21 when I got married. And he used to say, you know, people would go like, are you happy you got married? And and he'd go like, no, <laughs> you know, that's not a good basis for a relationship. So that didn't, you know, that didn't work out. And uh, and then I was single again for another over, over 10 years. 10 years. So it wasn't like I just raced from, you know, one cool husband to another. But my next husband was electric folk musician coming from the New York punk scene, like New York punk musicians who decided that they were going to do folk. <laughs> and they were a blast. And, and he, he, it was very fun being married to him. And he died. He died after we moved back here. But we had a great a great uh, a great time I had the Kingston trio in my living room so like that was the that was like a pinnacle for me so that was a good marriage and uh, but the, I guess my point is and I finally uh, married a Boeing engineer out here not quite Navy but it's sort of in the proximity <laughs> right really much more because he came from a Navy family but this the thing is is that this is what I have learned and that is, I think, I think this works for men too, but you, you have a career and you think that if you are going to be this cool person with this cool career, which I thought I was pretty cool when I was working for Lampoon. And I thought that the men would be tripping over themselves to marry me because I was just so darn cool. They don't care. That's not what they're looking for. That dynamic yeah. doesn't go in both directions and... I think especially when it comes to career stuff and coolness that men are incredibly competitive in a way that isn't necessarily constructive to have having a relationship with somebody who potentially has a cooler or cooler job than they do. Totally true. Yes. And also I think I think men expect a lot from having their careers too that they that they expect that if they're going to have a cool career that they're things are going to fall into place for them. So I think it's not necessarily just a female looking for a husband thing. I think mm. it's these things that we that we think we will get if we're successful. I think the dynamic has shifted a little bit, but this has always been the case of, and particularly for women, of which one of these things do I want to prioritize potentially to the detriment of the other, a, a relationship and marriage or a career. It's difficult for a lot of people to have bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Although some people do it really well. I don't know. I don't know how the magic happens. So, I mean, it's not, I'm not down on marriage, although I, I'm now officially a black widow. I mean, <laughs> which is, I don't kill them, but yeah. they die. You know, my second husband died. My third husband died. And anyone now who <laughs> takes a chance on me is... <laughs> really gonna be brave it's good that you have a sense of humor about it because i i can't even imagine <laughs> that happening once let alone multiple times i mean that must just be completely just devastating to every part of your life it's just weird it's just it's it's strange you know but you just you know it's like everything else i mean you either, what are you gonna do you know you just you just move move on and uh and so doing this book my husband died 
and around Christmas 2018. And then for a year, I was I was doing a lot of stuff. I, we were, I was playing a lot of music with my friends and, uh, and writing. I was doing like a ton of like little personal writing and writing poems. And because there's poems are wonderful because there's no commercial potential at all. Like, you know, you're making art if you're writing a poem. So that, that was really fun. I mean, I was, it was, and I, I rebuilt one of my computers, you know, I like upgraded my computer and I'm like in there, you know, looking at a YouTube video trying to make the parts work. That was really fun. And then Norman Hathaway came to me and said, you know, hey, uh, you know, I want you to do this book, basically. You know, like I was saying, things just come in the door to me and then I follow through. And that's what I did. I mean, he said, let's do the book. I pulled out all this artwork. He hired a photographer to come and take, literally take pictures with a Nikon camera of the artwork, which is very large. And then he laid out the book. We, we kind of chose the pages that are in it. We chose the strips that are in it, but we agreed on almost everything. That wasn't really, was fairly easy. And, uh, and here we go. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I got the sense that you had wanted to do a collection for a long time, but it just hadn't ever come together. People had asked me to do it, but um, they, they always, they either had some sort of odd contingency, like maybe you can do some new stuff to put in it. Or, or we're, we want to do it as a comic book. A couple of people wanted to do it as a comic book. And I, that's just, that didn't interest me in the least because I was already, I had already moved out of the, the staple binding. The staple binding is like, to me at that time, it's the kiss of death because it, you can't put it on a bookstore shelf and read the spine, read the title of the book on the spine. And, they, and back when I was thinking about doing that, uh, bookstores didn't want they didn't want your comics you know so so I would have wanted something in the bookstore I was looking at something really kind of small like this with one panel on every page so it would be a very thick book and then maybe uh, maybe a little a book um, like my favorite H.T. Webster books about poker and things like that where there's a there's a, a art on one side and then something some prose on the other side mm. so I thought that would be a nice thing to do and just um it just never and that's those are the things that I really wanted to do and I had the two books that came out in France Comics USA put together a Trots and Body book and a book of the other sex and amour stories <laughs> beautiful hardcover books so and I had I think I had the plates for those back when that would have meant something. I was doing other stuff. I don't know if you want to know these really mundane things about me. I worked in a hardware store for seven years and I loved it. I was in the shipping department and I, I got real, I could lift a hundred pounds. I got really strong. I would, I was handling all kind of like the saws and the things that you wrap pallets with. And, and, uh, and it was this incredibly um, diverse environment because everyone who, it was a contract hardware store. So they sold everything from hollow metal doors to fancy, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of doorknobs that you would have to order special order Baldwin and things like that and so everyone that started there came through the shipping department and I, you know I it's the thing that I loved about it was it nobody knew who I was what my relationships there were based on the fact that they could trust me to be there 
and do my job. It was a just show up job. And, uh, and it wasn't a sit down job for a long time. And I, all I could think of was Somerset Moms, the razor's edge of Hmm. how, um, are you familiar with that? Um, Very peripherally. The privileged children of the twenties, the wealthy children of the twenties, and they, they end up going to Paris. And meanwhile, one of them goes to India and has a mysterious stay in India where he, they made a movie out of it that's kind of halfway good, but not really capture, capturing it with Bill Murray. But he, he comes back and he can cure your headache because he's learned these these subtle things, you know, and this Eastern mysticism or you know, the whole Eastern thing. And I mean, when yeah. it was written, I, I think it really was a mystery. You know, now we kind of know about Maharishi kind of things. That's what I, that's what the way I felt about be, working in the hardware store was that I was in India <laughs> pulling bodies out of the Ganges or something. <laughs> you know? and, and then, and then when you, when you get, when you get laid off, from a job like that, because that was one of the, our depressions, then you're on unemployment and unemployment is God's gift to artists. So everything that you want to do, um, you now have the time to do it and you don't have to worry so much about an income coming in. So that's nice for a while, but I, uh, they, they make you, they make you apply to other jobs. And I applied at a, a place called compassion in dying here, which is, which is a, um, it was it was connected with uh, hemlock, and there were people who broke off from hemlock because they when they were dealing with people who were dying terminally ill and dying they didn't want to just hand them a book they wanted to actually assist, not assist them because that's not legal but they wanted to show them how they could kill themselves. It was hospice care. It's not hospice. They work with hospice. They're they're entirely legitimate. I mean, this is. Yeah. They're in New York. They they changed their name though. They're well. Hemlock is that's a loaded, but that's a loaded term in that context. Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I know a lot about helping people commit suicide. Although you know, it's it's a very you know, it's a very it's a political thing. I mean, people have the right to do that. I know more than call me if you need me. God willing. How does one end up in that? world well so how did we end up in that world well okay so there i am i'm i have to apply for jobs i see this ad and i think well that's weird and i'm weird so i'm going to apply for this job and i went and i talked to the director and it was like a two-person office it was delightful and he was a wonderful amazing smart incredible guy who'd been through a lot with um having a partner died. Everybody's got, everybody involved in that organization has a lot of backstory and a tragic backstory. And that they So do with. you. Yes. Yes. We had that in common. So I did everything from, and it was a sit down job <laughs> as opposed to the standing up in the hardware store, getting strong. Um, so I did, I was the, the, what do you call them? The, the girl Friday, I think is what they used okay. to call it. Utility player. Yeah, but first contact for for people who called up and and they they'd go like I'm I'm with my father in the hospital and he's mm-hmm. screaming that he wants to die. Can you help us? The classified ad that you respond to it says we assist people in suicide. Oh no, it was just it was just you know uh, admin needed. 
Ad, okay. You know, admin needed compassion and dying. I mean, a name like compassion and dying I, is just struck a chord with me. I'm sure it jumped out at a lot of people, but it probably jumped out at a lot of people in the negative. Not everybody is built to do that kind of work. Well, um, that's true. Although it's helping people. It is, but people, you know, just generally, and and when it comes to things like hospice, people just, and, and I think understandably, like, are made very uncomfortable by being around dying people. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I was, we had caseworkers who actually would visit with people in their homes. And the thing, the the main thing that anyone would need to know about it is that once you have the ability, once you can control your own end of life circumstances, you're not very likely to want to go out that way. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot to it, and it takes a certain kind of person to to want to control their death. But most people just feel better knowing that they can if they need to. I mean, it's like anybody would want that to know that they would that they would have that because they're terrible stories about the medical profession and what they will do with somebody who's 90 years old and they want to give them a colonoscopy or something, you know, and, and people have real, you know, really terrible things that happen to them. So, so you're saving them from this really awful thing that happens at the end of their life. So it's, I don't know, it's, you have to be brave, I think. And, and, and I, I, I feel like that there's a lot of things I'm not, but um, in that sense, I'm brave. I've, I've, I walk through a lot of, a lot of doors that other people might not want to walk through <laughs> Yeah, and you just do it. You feel like the, the knowledge that they can do it dissuades them from actually doing it. Well, hope the hope is that it will dissuade them from blowing their heads off with a shotgun mm. or something or hanging themselves. And then the people they love are, are left to find them. That's, that's one thing that, is they really want to eliminate is, is something, you know, to, to, to be able to die peacefully is, is a real, you know, gift. You don't want it to be more traumatic for the people in your life than it has to be. You know, this, this is the thing. I mean, it's, it's, and now, I mean, one of the main things that they, I would say we, but I'm not working there anymore. Stress is the end of life paperwork to have your, you know, durable power of attorney and all that kind of stuff together and it makes you have to state your choices because if you don't have that then some chances are someone you love is going to have to make those choices and and I went through that with my mother's death I kept my mother alive when she didn't want to be alive you know I'm like yeah you do everything you can and they're like Mm -hmm. why and I said well because we want to be there with her something I didn't want to lose my mother and so I really know how I really know that side of it, the, the side that doesn't want to let people go. And it's, it's really hard. And if you're the person who's dying, you know, you can make, that's a gift that you give to other people to not make them have to make that choice. Do you regret having done that with your mother? Well, I was, I've done a lot of stuff that, you know, I could just attribute to just being naive. But you feel like I, if you had the knowledge that you have now that it might've played out differently. Oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier about the desire to be cool and to be around cool people. And I totally get that. And I'm wondering how much of the appeal of a job at a hardware store is that you just don't have to 
be cool. It will. It's yes. The, when I was when I was an editor at Lampoon, I I and I was just a regular editor who was sent out to you know bring material into the magazine, comics, but also prose stuff, which was really difficult because they get so much directy writing, really bad. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do I, is this bad or do I just not get it? You know, <laughs> it's just but, over your head. It's so good. It's so smart. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, getting, you're getting phone calls all the time from people. I mean, it's, it's just a, I remember when, when I had stopped working there and the phone wasn't ringing anymore. It was just like so peaceful. And, and I liked, I loved hanging out with people. I loved being able to take them to lunch. There was always that sort of unequalness of I was the one who could give them work. And I'm uh, not comfortable with, I certainly was not comfortable with that then. I mean, I was like all about not ex- exploiting yeah. people. But the power yeah. dynamic was uneven. It was really uncomfortable. Um, and, and more so with some people than others. With like, if you're hanging out with Sam Gross, you know, it's pure fun. There's no yeah. power dynamic, you know, but, but people, especially people who were just starting out and all, and, and uh, it, it, I don't know, it was just, and it, there weren't any incidents. There weren't anything. It was not anything I could point to. It was just um, compared to being in a place where literally nobody knows that you're even a cartoonist. You're just like this person. It was just so refreshing. I've worked plenty of retail jobs in my day. And and I guess part of the appeal maybe is that in terms of your job requirement and your day-to-day, things are pretty black and white, right? In terms of what people need. If people need a specific uh, hardware part or a tool, like you know exactly what that is and, and you don't have to be necessarily super creative about it. And there's a lot of pressure when it's not entirely clear what you have to do day to day. Well, I was not in sales, but I trained people. So I was really good at training people. And I did uh, like a customer service, like I used to like, they, you know, they've, they've lost the entire lock sets for Bill Gates mansion. You know, they, how did they disappear? You know, now we've got to find them. And so is that a real example? Uh, something like that. Yeah. yeah they would, they would, they would just, lo- I, I guess somebody was stealing them, but it was really, you know, I mean, they're there. The, the process is, you know, an order comes in, you go pick them off the shelves, you, you bring them back, somebody packs them up, they run them through the yeah. UPS machine or, or, or put them in the truck room. See, if they put them in the truck room to go somewhere, that was where somebody could walk off with them. It's fulfillment. Yes, fulfillment. And uh, so, and, and it was great because I had no, my ego is not, did not exist in that place. And people would go like, you know, how can you stand the salesman talking to you like that? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> it's sort of like the way Melania Trump deals with with Trump. If you if you read her, if you read that the book written by her best friend, and she's talking about Melania, and Melania is just like, eh, I don't care. I don't care about she, it. She knows he's an idiot, and it doesn't well, matter. The thing that was written on the back of her jacket when she went down to the border, yeah. that was her. She's just going I, like, I don't, oh, I don't really care, do you? I don't really care. She doesn't yeah. really, a really kind of a peaceful, safe place to live in your head. Sure. I mean, again, <laughs> context is important in that one, right? I mean, it's, you know, and understandably, some people were put off by that given <laughs> things that were happening in the national conversation. But you're right. I mean, it's, you know, in, in, in a 
in a roundabout way, it's it's kind of a Zen approach to things. Oh yeah, I mean, it doesn't make us love Melania, but but it it does. Yeah. It, it it is a it is. I think it's a way maybe more people live than we would like to think. And you were happy living like that for a while. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's there's plenty of. I wrote a parody of "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina." Um, from Evita. Yes, Evita, the song from it. And um, I would sing that in the in the shipping room. It's don't cry for me, builder's hardware. I'm afraid we've lost your heart, you know, your door locks or something. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, that, she's weird. You had said before that part of the reason why your parents were, I guess, in a sense, trying to marry you off is that they felt you were you know, use the word useless. And I mean, that's a hard thing not to internalize, right? I mean, if the people you're closest to in your life are essentially telling you that, do you start to feel useless? Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, my, I was, I was a late baby. My mom was like, I think near 40 when I was born. And my father, you know, my, my family had been at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed my 11 year old sister, my, my, my sister who's living now was a month old when that happened. And uh, my other sister died right at the end of the war when she was 11. And so that was 1945. And then came the, you know, so I was born in 1950 and the Korean war started. So then my dad went off to Korea to fight. So all my mom wanted was to have my dad back and go to the officer's club and, you know, have cocktails with her friends and live that sort of mad men fifties life. That was the goal that people had then. And I had total freedom. I could, I just, the kids in my neighborhood just ran wild and we, it was, you know, you just lived your life. And I had a credit card when I was, I think, 10 years old. I could go buy stuff. And, and But there was no, I mean, I never, everybody else took the SATs. I never even knew that was happening. You were on bases the whole time? No, huh? I was, most of my life I was in Magnolia. I was born in Virginia, we went to California. We went to Alaska and lived in Ala- Kodiak, Alaska, and then came down here. And um, my father was in military intelligence in Alaska and came down here. I think he was doing the same thing here in Seattle. And then we went to Panama and he had a, quote, civilian job, port captain of the Panama Canal, the Balboa side. So it was like a pretty high, there was the governor, the lieutenant governor, and then my dad. Um, And that was heaven, Panama Canal Zone. We had maids, we had gardeners, I had chickens, I had a horse. Yeah, it was, and then I had to come back. And then they, my, my father, they retired a bunch of naval officers at the time. And he could retire as admiral if he, if he retired in 1959-60. So he did that. And um, uh, we came back to Seattle and it was just misery from then on. Mm. Seattle was cold and rainy and the kids were snotty and um and it's all the things that are in my comic strip 
happened. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know you stayed put for a while there in Seattle, but when you're trying to figure out who you are and trying to make friends, it's, it has to be incredibly difficult to be moving from place to place like that. You went through that? Yeah. I mean, they are kids. Kids are not Navy kids are friendly. It's really easy to make friends in a place like the way it was in the canal zone where everybody's military, everybody works for the government or did at that time. So all the kids were kind of in the same situation. They'd all been from somewhere else and, and we, you just made friends. And it's one of the good things about um, coming from the military is that you learn how to make friends. You know, you're, you're com- I'm super comfortable. I can go, I can move to another city now and make friends. Just you, it's inherent. It's, it's built in. Um, and so, um, but but the other kids are are very you know they don't they don't like anything strange yeah and i have always been different so from the get go and and i think you know i'm not super smart i have a lot of sympathy for very intelligent people because i think their lives are more lonely than they even realize and it's because of their because they're smart and they're seeing more they're absorbing more they're thinking more about things a- analyzing them and stuff and 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 other people aren't doing that other people are just kind of following their path whatever their path is and so and i see that i see a lot of really 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 smart troubled drug addicts alcoholics people who are self-medicating this this loneliness that you have of not being understood do you feel like that was an issue for you too that you just couldn't find the right group of people for a while who understood you until i met the cartoonists (laughs) yes i was thinking about that because i was thinking when 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 we got together in san francisco it was like we were all refugees and Dan had been fired three times from the San Francisco Chronicle. Got to be a record. Yeah. Well, you know, they would fire him because he was, he, he would take his, he dropped acid and then took his characters to magic cookie land. And, uh, and, he, and then, you know, there was a time when he, you know, he, I think he wiped a booger off his nose and then shook Ronald Reagan's hand or something. Um, so he was, he was into it. I mean, he was, he's a, he's a great character. So, but people loved him and his strip odd bodkins. And so they forced the paper to take him back. But finally, the third time was the charm, I guess. So he was in that condition. And then Bobby and Ted, Bobby, Bobby did this great strip about why Bobby Seal is not black. Because working for an underground paper, you know, it was like he drew, it was too cartoony, you know. And so by the time the group editors, the group of editors at the underground paper that he was working for got done with him. It's like Bobby Seale looked like a, like an Aryan hero with blonde, blonde crew cut. And there was that, uh, that, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable and it's the people that should appreciate you, the left. And I had gone through that. My paper was taken over by, by weathermen. And one of the weathermen, I, I worked really hard to um, set up this Christmas tree 
one year and they told me it was a bourgeois holiday and, and really read the riot act to tell me what a terrible person I was for having a Christmas tree in our commune. And uh, I ended up chopping it up and burning it. And so, you know, that's, I was sort of a refugee from that mentality and but the cartoonists, everybody was a little bit pissed off. You find this underground paper, and you find this this group of uh, you know of like leftists who you think, at least to some degree, are like minded. But you you didn't quite get there, right? You hadn't quite found your group of people who understood you until you took that next step. Yeah, the people initially at, at the at the newspaper were my friends, and and we were fine until these other these other weathermen people came in with their dogma. The group, the weathermen did a hostile takeover of the underground newspaper. Pretty much. That's what it felt like. You know, I, wild I, time, I, man. <laughs> I, well, I wasn't running it because a lot of times they would say, they would say that the, 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 the real editor of the newspaper is the guy that drives it to the printer because he's got the, his hands on it the last time. So there's a certain amount of that, that it's just brute force. But these people, but they were, they had this, they had their ideology, see, and, and I had been working with anarchists who were real anarchists, not like the Portland anarchists now, which I, I'm not sure where they're at, but these were anarchists that believed in cooperative societies. That was their main belief. And that's what, that's what the Soviet Union had had right after the revolution that got destroyed. It's anarcho-syndicalism. Yeah. So, so people that, that came in and that were, I mean, one of them was a Maoist, you know, oh, the Maoists were just horrible and scary. This is like a Tom Wolf book. <laughs> yeah, it is sort of Mao Maoing the flack catchers. <laughs> yeah. We got just, Mao Maoed. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, you're growing up with these parents who are basically effectively telling you that you're useless unless other than getting married. You go off to art school and then you meet this group and you do find your calling. At what point did you realize that you were, in fact, not useless? In therapy after after I left Lampoon. Well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I've yeah, heard yeah. Emily Flake say that she has imposter syndrome and now it has a name, imposter syndrome. But yeah, I mean, fake it till you make it is, but I mean, those are just practical. It's just, it's just practical things. That's, that's everybody. Now we now recognize that everybody feels inadequate at some level and never having gone to college really made me feel inadequate. I guess I'm trying to sort of parse the difference between inadequacies, but also, I mean, you did have ambition and you did know what you wanted to do and you were able to find success in it. And you didn't go down the road that your parents wanted you to go down. You know, what happened that really took you down this, this road? I mean, you know, I don't know if you think so, but you are in fact cool. You did become a cool person. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Where's my husband? (laughs) I record it and you can show that to people. But right. you, you are in fact right. a very cool person. And I want you to know that if, in case people don't tell you that enough. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I think it was the times. It was society. It was that society changed. And it was all the stuff that happened with hippies becoming accepted and all the changes to the, the thing that ended the war. It was there was it was us and them 
And it's very similar to the way it is now. Because there's a definite them out there. There's a really dumb them. And back then it was hard. We call it the hard hats, you know, the hard hats. And my dad was one of them. He said, he said, um, we, he said, you know, you better watch out. My friends have guns and they're waiting for you. That's what my father told me. But, and, and he was serious because they were, they were scared of us. They were scared of the, the boomer youth. And um, we really did change things. And it was, it was really nice until I think, you know, you can speculate a lot about how much like the CIA or FBI or J. Edgar Hoover or whatever threw a wrench into that culture. And made the, you know, and threw drugs into the culture. MK Ultra. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm not sure how much of that there, there actually was. but it, Or maybe it just disintegrated on its own. But it, it became the 80s, you know, and Jerry Rubin became a stockbroker. And that was the moment when you needed to get out of New York and you needed to leave Lampoon was when kind of Reaganomics was really starting well, to kick in. in. New York. I stayed in New York for another 10 years, almost 10 mm-hmm. years after that with the, the help of my shrink. <laughs> okay. But that's when you left Lampoon was that changeover from the 70s. Yeah. 70s. Yeah. It was like, it was cosmic. I mean, there were a lot of things that were, that were coming together that were like, um, the, remember when or you probably are too young to remember, but when uh, you could play the Beatles record backwards. Yeah. Paul is dead. Yeah, that was the same kind of moment. It was a, a sort of a cosmic moment of, you know, the Manson killings. That uh, late that 60s, was, early 70s parallels the 70s into the 80s. I, for me, it did. Yes, very much, very much, yeah. I've heard that said a lot about the, the, the 60s and the 70s. And obviously, the Manson murders are very much that moment for a lot of people hippies turned into something darker and it makes sense because obviously you know now when you think of the 80s you think of gord gecko and you know cocaine and all that stuff but but I, I i've never really heard somebody describe that transition in that way but it makes a lot of sense yeah a lot, a lot of a lot of things happen and a, a lot of like weird coincidences like you know i yeah it just queen anne hill is a place here it's the mm-hmm. neighboring hill next to where i live i was at the democratic convention and i met i ran into love israel who was who had a how you know had a com huge commune thing going on queen anne hill and then there was a there was a murderer in thailand that i think they're making another film about him he is a really interesting guy he was in vietnam thailand india and he specialized in take, ca- taking tourists, drugging tourists, keeping them alive, but like just to collect their money. He would like collect any money that was coming into them and he'd use their ID and stuff. And he was working with this other woman and all this stuff. And, and one of the, uh, one of the um, people he murdered was from Queen Anne Hill. You know, it's just, I'm reading this book and it's like, why is everybody from Queen Anne? You know, it's just a, coincidence but it was spooky at the time and there was there were more there were more things that happened like that spooky to a point that you decided you needed a big change in your life no there was just going on i mean the change was happening it the the change i i'm this is so odd because i'm just thinking like how many people actually change their lives i mean don't 
do they not just get chained? Nothing <laughs> happened. There are people who like decide they're going to change their lives, you know, that, that, or, or that they need a change and yeah. Make yeah, no, dramatic decisions. But um, I think more often than not changes happen to people. Yeah. Yeah. They, they just, they, it all comes together. I'm sorry. I wish I had more time to talk to you where I could just tell you stories. And- you mentioned when people were approaching you with the idea of doing a collection of Trots and Bonnie that at least one person suggested the idea of doing new material and you kind of, that was what put you off to it. Was there, there was never any interest in, in revisiting it or now that you've like spent some time with this collection and gone through and looked at all the old stuff and you have this beautiful volume is it something that you would want to revisit at some point well I could uh if if somebody asked me to I probably would because I mean I it's just it's not it 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 was a thing that I did in a certain time I do other stuff now I'm I'm doing other comics that are more yeah and and I and also the, the things that I did are commonplace now, you know, mm. I mean, I did a strip about Bonnie gets her period and there, she, there's a panel with her legs spread with the blood in her, in her crotch, you know, and it's like that was done in, in the, the um, Sasha Baron Cohen's movie, latest movie. And it's hilarious, but it's no longer, you know, it's no longer a point. You know, no, no, that point does not need to be made. And um, so, you know, there are other things that need to be talked about. And, and if I had a venue, but I really believe that things, that people are doing one-off comic strips all the time. I was listening to Emily Flake talk about her career and, your, and how she pitches, she pitches things and stuff like that. Well, Emily, um, well, if somebody could pay her enough to just take, give her a space that she could just fill, that's a, that's a different mindset. You know, that's, that's a good place for people to be. And I've, I've been uh, trying to uh, get people to do pot comics now and sell them in the shops that in the marijuana shop the dispensaries in, well, not dispensaries. Cause we, we just have, we just have, we don't have medical, we we have just have medical not okay we're, we just have commercial pot shops so that the head the head shops yeah 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 bring back head shops you know where people go in and they buy like a they spend a bunch of money on their drug and then they see a comic book that costs you know three dollars or five dollars or whatever and it's got comics in it and do that do it every you know have it come out every month at least you know, with, with some regular artists who have a regular shot, you know, and so you give people a venue because that's the way comics work is, you know, like the Sunday comics, like the newspaper comics have worked that way for so long. And people who are, people who are working on Instagram, like Leanna Fink has really caught that because Instagram is the closest you can have to that regular slot because cartoonists, they'll have up and downs, you know, one will be good, one will be not so good, but you follow them all the time, follow everything they do. And then some people like this one and don't like that one, you know, so having a nice mix is a, is something else you want. We just don't really have that today. I mean, we, we sort of have that with Instagram because people are building it. And maybe, maybe there are other things that I don't really know about that 
where people are are doing things but then then they don't pay either you gotta pay (laughs) yeah that's that's the rub with all this stuff comics wise what what are you up to these days besides working with nick the publicist on (laughs) selling this book Uh, my theory is is that if enough people buy this book i'll be able to do another one okay so yeah. there's that. And I just, I'm doing a hell of a lot of writing. I've got more projects, you know, I, as, as much unfinished business I have in my house, I have a lot of projects that need to be done. And I'm, and I'm think I'm still working for Joyce Farmer doing five pages on, on global warming for Joyce Farmer's book. If she'll, it's, I took a little vacation from working on it, so I hope she's still waiting for it. She may or may not know that you're still working for her. (laughs) 